Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. We're going to cover several topics today on the podcast, Mike, including a look at CIDRAP's forthcoming COVID-19 viewpoint on testing and the latest vaccine news. But before we get started, uh, what are your opening thoughts for this episode of the Osterholm Update? Uh, Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again, and it's good to be with all of you again who are listening to this podcast. Uh, I must say that over the course of the past few weeks, uh, getting the feedback I have from all of you uh, with your many very, very thoughtful comments, um, I feel like if anything, we've somewhat developed a family here of people all who have a similar concern are seeking the same information and hoping for the very best. So uh, I have to say that uh, thank you to all of you who are listening. Um, As I've done in the past, uh, I want to dedicate this particular episode uh, to uh, what was, to me, one of the most heartbreaking uh, kind of uh, situations regarding the COVID-19 experience. I saw an interview this past week with children who are, uh, whose mother was a nurse at a New York City hospital who died as a result of her infection, uh, which was very likely acquired at work. And, uh, you know, so I, I really dedicate this, this session to all the families who have lost loved ones as healthcare workers or first responders who are on the front lines. Uh, we thank you. We know that there'll be nothing they'll ever be able to adequately compensate you and your lives for the loss of your loved one. But thank you very much for being there. And just know that uh, their their efforts were not in vain and uh, we're a better country and uh, a lot better in terms of, of the health of our country because of what you've done. So, so in that sense, uh, uh, we welcome you on board too. Mike, more than two months since the pandemic really hit the U.S., many parts of the country appear to have, for better or worse, entered the post-lockdown phase, with some states moving more quickly to reopen than others. Where are we in the trajectory of this pandemic? Well, what we have to remember is uh, what we were originally attempting to do with these lockdowns when they first occurred back in March. And that was, we had just come out of a uh, situation as it unfolded in China, where we saw the very rapid escalating of cases, uh, the very serious health challenges in Wuhan, in the Hubei province, and seeing this as, in a sense, a house on fire kind of event. It was at that same time we were seeing the situations emerge in Europe, uh, in particular in uh, uh, the areas of northern Italy, in the Milan area. And with this, uh, we in this country, and particularly as we saw unfolding in New York, responded with the idea that we were trying to flatten the curve. If we heard that term once, we heard it a hundred times in our discussions about what we were attempting to do. And I think what's happened is, is that we have not evolved our thinking into where are we going next? What is happening next? Why are we doing what we're doing? And how does this sustain us for the entirety of the uh, pandemic? Again, I come back to this uh, situation of uh, the past few weeks discussion about the fact we're in this for many more months to come. 
And so wh what are we going to do next? And I think the, one of the challenges we have is we've just not evolved that thinking uh, in what we're trying to accomplish. And we're really focused right now on somehow reconciling information about cases that continue to increase in number in some locations, other locations where they're dramatically decreasing, and coming up with a consistent national policy. In the process of all of that, we've also had the situation where we uh, clearly, severely uh, uh, depressed our economy. We have uh, put people out of work in this country. We've had uh, a tremendous amount of suffering uh, from an economic standpoint. And so what has happened is we've now evolved from a discussion of flattening the curve where everyone kind of more or less uh, you know, put their shoulders into it initially because they saw this as coming to every little town every county, every state in the country, to one now is saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm not sure how bad this really is in my area. Uh, I think this is one of those things about nursing homes and prisons and, and uh, drug treatment centers or homeless shelters, uh, meatpacking plants, but it's not so much in my community in many cases. And um, for those areas that were very severely impacted early on, they can now say things are getting better. And so what we need to do now is ask ourselves, what is our next goal as public health? Uh, one, we have to recognize will not be a uniformly distributed kind of outbreak, uh, meaning that it'll, some places it will happen sooner than others in this first wave of activity. Second of all, as cases do come down, how do we do any further action to try to prevent cases if there suddenly is an increase in cases? Um, you know, we saw basically almost all the states in this country decide to uh, relax their distancing recommendations. Governors who I think are seriously trying to do the right thing, uh, trying to understand uh, what is best for their state, both uh, from a public health standpoint and from an economic standpoint, are now trying to find out oh, what's our next step. But we had an agreement, I thought, uh, generally speaking, in terms of the White House criteria that were supposed to be used to relax states into uh, releasing uh, the uh, populations back into everyday life, uh, bringing back the economy as we know it, those seem to have gone out the window. I really haven't seen states at all try to to match up with those requirements. And I'm not being critical as much, though, as it sets us up for the next phase is if I don't know how we came back, how will we ever know what to do if we're going to have to somehow restrict our economy again, uh, bring more distancing back in? Is it going to be a one-fold, two-fold, five-fold increase in cases? What will it take? And how will we come to some decision that this is what needs to be done again? And I will just continue to say over and over and over again, it's all about viral gravity. This virus is going to keep transmitting. Uh, we are a long, long ways from that 60 to 70% uh, herd immunity level. So I think the challenge we have now is, is really saying, well, what do the models tell us? And this is where I think we're really, uh, in a very limited way, not going to be able to rely on any, really, what I would consider to be solid data about where we're going. And what I mean by that is if you look at models, and you know, I have said this on multiple occasions on this particular uh, podcast, you know, I, all models are wrong, and it, some may give you helpful information. But there are basically two kinds of models. And there, one is a forecasting model, which basically just takes information that's already happened and tries to, in a sense, 
uh, tell you based on this, I extrapolate to this as the next one. It's kind of like taking a sequence of numbers and guessing what the next number is going to be and getting it right because you see a pattern. Uh, very shortly, when we see the cases drop, that's going to continue to tell us the cases are going to drop. I'll come back to that in a moment because we're making an assumption that they're dropping for reasons I don't think we can necessarily say. But they also then don't tell us if they may come back up. Uh, the original version of this model was the uh, one from University of Washington, the IHME model, that basically uh, has not provided us necessarily, even on just extrapolating the numbers, uh, really reliable estimates of what might happen. The other kind of models we call mechanistic models. This is where basically we're trying to take data and bring it together. Like, for example, how much transmission might occur? What might it look like? What's the rate at which it will occur? How many people will be immune so that they become rods in the transmission reaction situation? And what, what does that give us in terms of kind of predicting long-term outcomes? The best examples of this were, in fact, the model that came out of the Imperial College group uh, in England that projected out to two years, assuming that this herd immunity would have to occur. How might this look? And I think all of this uh, really, this, this information is constrained a tremendous amount by just what do we know about this virus. And so let me come up with a third model that is surely not based on statistics, but it goes back to the original estimate of, of potential scenarios that we laid out several weeks ago in our scenario document. And what if we have the following happen? It doesn't matter what we do. We release people back into society as it ever were, businesses open up, and cases keep dropping. One, I'm certain that everyone will be pleased, and we surely don't want anyone to be infected, ill, seriously ill or die, and we'll claim victory. We'll say, wow, we did it. Look at, we won. That will be so, so, so short-sighted. Uh, because then if that's what's happening, I am much more convinced that it's very possible what's going to happen is we're going to have that influenza-like scenario model that I shared with you in that previous document, where for reasons we have never understood, I've been asked this many, many times, why does this happen? We don't know, and let no one tell you they do know, why uh, an influenza-like virus will disappear. And, and I say disappear, literally cases may just come to a, a grinding halt. We go several months, uh, and then all of a sudden we see this next big peak, a second wave, much like has been seen in previous influenza pandemics. Now, as you may recall, I've said all along, I don't know if this virus is going to act like an influenza virus or not. It sure has up to date, but I don't know that that'll be the case. But my biggest fear is if, in fact, we see a big drop in cases and it's not due to any human behavior, meaning we're actually opening up, we're not locking down. And I've already shared with this uh, podcast uh, audience that uh, seasonality does not appear to play any significant role in coronaviruses. I mean, look at look at the transmission right now. We've got it in Brazil. We've got it in north of the northern hemisphere at the same time. This thing's not acting at all like a seasonal virus. So my concern is if this goes away and from that standpoint, we then see uh, uh, models which could not predict that. There's nothing a model could predict here. No model is going to give you this story. The only thing that's going to give you this story is if, in fact, the cases just disappear. Um, and so stay tuned. I think we are really in what I would consider to be right now one of the most critical periods of this pandemic 
in terms of projecting forward. You may recall our group as early as uh, mid-January began predicting the pandemic. Uh, we made predictions about how it unfold in late February, early March. We made predictions about how it might very well look in countries. And then I've shared with you that I was as far as my headlights could go. Uh, I don't know after that what it might do. This next few months, this next month even, will be very telling. And uh, we're going to know a lot more, I think, about what this might look like, whether it's one of the slow burns, whether it's this kind of uh, foothill type approach where outbreaks bumps here, bumps there, they keep occurring, going, or if we basically go quiet, and that's the quiet before the storm, which could be a very sizable uh, wave. Remember we are at 5 to 15% across most of the country, a limited number of places in New York area, maybe at 20%. But I just keep reminding people over and over and over again from a planning standpoint, think of all the, the pain, suffering, death, and financial destruction we've done with only 5 to 15% of the people in this country infected and for that matter around the world. And uh, so it gives you a very sobering sense of what we have to anticipate going forward to get to that 60 to 70% just to begin to slow down transmission. You've been saying we're, uh, we're in the second inning of a nine inning ball game. Uh, are we still in the second inning? You know, it's funny because I'm getting that question a lot now too. Like, you know, are you stuck in second inning or not? And actually I've actually gotten to a couple ball games where one inning took up half the game because of the uh, strategies, the hitting, et cetera, et cetera. I do think we're still in the second inning. Uh, and while some people find that hard to believe, if I've been saying that for the last two months, but, uh, you know, we're at the end of what would be this first wave, this first situation, if this is going to be an influenza-like experience. Um, if we see the cases uh, decrease to the point of where it appears where everything's under control, then I think we're quickly shifting an inning three to six. Uh, if we see more of a slow burn just continue, then I'd say we're in inning three, maybe getting to inning four. But what we have to understand is just like in real baseball, uh, one inning can take an hour, four innings can take a half an hour. It's all about what happens. And I worry desperately that the next inning uh, could come quickly. It could be a long, long inning longer than the ones we've had. So I still say we're in the second inning. I suspect that within the next month, we'll know if we're going for any three to six in, in big order. So one of the big challenges in reopening the country and the economy and moving forward, as we've previously discussed, is having enough testing. Uh, what does SIDRAP's next viewpoint have to say about COVID-19 testing? Yes. In fact, today uh, we just published uh, our most current SIDRAP viewpoint entitled A Smart Approach to COVID-19 Testing. Um, Right now uh, in this country, there seems to be a general sense that it best is understood in the mantra, test, test, test. I've heard one governor say that. I've heard most of them say that. I've heard that from public health officials, people who are in the policy area, many who have never worked in this area at all of public health, who basically continue to say test, 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 as if the current testing reality is going to bring us some different in terms of what's happening with this pandemic. And what really is the reality is that this is a very complicated system, and it's a cascade of interconnected factors, that, and our, most of, our approach must be strategic around those factors. 
What I'm talking about is what we've defined as smart testing, where what we're really talking about is developing the right infrastructure in the laboratory area and how we support that within the supply chains that we need, not just in terms of reagents and swabs, but a whole number of different uh, chemicals, machine parts, uh, even expertise. Then we have to be testing the right population. Who are we testing and why? What's our purpose? And then who are we testing within that population? Then we need the right test. There are a number of different tests today. There's molecular, there's antigen, there's antibody, and they're all appropriate in different settings. And we're not distinguishing that. And we don't understand even within the different categories, the tests are that are most effective or not and giving us the results we're looking for. Then we've got to get the right sense of, uh, the right interpretation. Uh, you know, we, we've been frustrated with the fact that if you look at test sensitivity and specificity, in many locations, these tests have been poorly, poorly applied to the population and inter interpretations made that are absolutely inappropriate. And then finally, the right action. What happens if you get a test result? Does it get back to the patient? When it gets back to the patient, what happens? Uh, if, in fact, it is something public health needs in order, in order to track the uh, pandemic? Do they get that information that they need? Does it help in terms of making sure contacts are followed up and that action is taken? So smart testing is really right infrastructure, right population, right test, right interpretation, and right action. And if you don't have that whole system, you really don't accomplish anything with just a test. So what we really tried to do is lay out what are the pressing issues? We have a whole series of recommendations. We try to define the points that we're trying to make. Let me just give you an example of testing this not part of a smart system approach. You've all heard about over the course of the past week, the challenges that have come up at the White House, where they were using the Abbott ID Now test, which is a rapid detection test, results in 15 minutes. And they were using that as if it were the absolute impenetrable wall around the White House, the senior leadership protecting uh, the people that we all know need to be protected. And yet this test had a, a clear challenge in terms of false negatives, people who were really infected, not getting picked up. I wrote about this over three weeks ago in my New York Times op-ed piece about the problem with this test. And yet it was continued to be used at the White House uh, where up to 50% of the people uh, in one study were found to be negative when they were really positive for the virus. Well, you know, that's like basically, you know, having a submarine with five screen doors. That's, that's not going to last. How did that happen that that test got applied there? How did that happen that no one caught the fact that you needed to screen anyone who was test negative with a PCR test to be sure that they were negative, which of course is gonna take a day or more to get done. So if it could happen at the highest levels of government where we're supposed to be protecting those in terms of at all costs, I can go through a litany of other situations where testing has just been wrong. It's not been effective. And so when you hear this mantra, test, 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 it is mindless. It is not what we're talking about. We do believe testing is very important to responding to this pandemic, but we have to understand the success of a testing program should be measured only in part by the number of tests completed. Um, we lay out on our recommendations uh, how to approach the SMART uh, testing for COVID-19. Uh, we lay out a recommendation to the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, about the appointment of a Lurbin panel of national experts. 
that we uh, recommend then that they address with very specific lists, eight, eight uh, different points that are desperately needed right now from supply chain uh, management uh, uh, and, and supplies in general to the infrastructure and laboratories. Has anyone here thought about the fact that we're now running these machines 24-7 in ways they were never anticipated to run? Think about if you bought a new car and you ran it at 100 miles an hour, 24 hours a day for four weeks. Do you think that thing would be running the same way at the end of four weeks with no maintenance at 100 miles an hour for four weeks? No, it wouldn't. We're seeing that happen with the machines right now. No one thought about that it's, uh, an infrastructure needs to be there well beyond just can I run a test today. And then when we get into the system today, we have many locations where having taken uh, curbside testing, in, uh, incomplete information was obtained. We can't get a result back to somebody. Somebody can't get their result because their name and ID doesn't match up with what the person wrote down on the test. And so therefore, for security reasons, they won't give a result back. We have a very incomplete information, often from testing going back to health departments. And so this has got to be part of a system. And so we try to lay this out in very real terms with clarity, what needs to be done. And if you're not doing smart testing for COVID-19, we are missing opportunities to address this situation with fewer tests, but much higher quality outcome. And that's where we need to go. You talked about vaccines last week on the podcast, Mike, and, and this week we had some more vaccine news as Moderna Therapeutics announced that its RNA vaccine candidate produced an immune response in eight volunteers. Are there reasons to be excited about this news and are there reasons to be wary? The image I'd like to leave everyone with right now as we talk about COVID-19 vaccines is one, the gate has just been opened at the Kentucky Derby. The horses are in their first 10 seconds of the run. And we're already trying to declare winners and losers and who makes it and who doesn't. Um, any kind of interpretation about the data from the Moderna study is very premature. Um, good news is that they did find what they found, but in fact, if they hadn't found that, we'd all be in big trouble. We are a long, long ways from understanding with these eight people where we found antibody um, that, in fact, we now have a, a, an effective vaccine. I just continue to remind people that uh, there are over 100 plus vaccines under consideration right now. Uh, they have different uh, sub uh, platforms for how they're going to be uh, used, what they do in terms of trying to elicit immune response. And we just have to wait. Uh, I think that right now I would expect that we would see successful uh, movement forward with these vaccines. The thing that would be concerning is if we do have problems. Um, if, and, and I think that it's just way too early. I, and I, I'm, I'm struck by the stock market. Uh, I have lost from a uh, public health standpoint, God knows we all know I, I have no expertise in money, trust me. Um, but having said that, I can't believe how people rush in and rush out on news that I would find highly incomplete without giving us any real nod, yes or no, uh, what we have here. And so uh, I think this is a possible vaccine that could be in the mix. Oh, we all want a vaccine so badly. But I, I would urge people uh, yesterday, May 19th, Helen Branswell had a story in STAT, a vaccine expert saying Moderna didn't produce data critical to assessing COVID-19 vaccine. And I think she's right. Uh, we still have huge questions about this. Doesn't mean that it is a problem, but we can't assess it. 
And so I, at this point, I, I, I remain optimistic that we are, as a globe, without a doubt, applying uh, the kind of, of incredible uh, infrastructure, uh, planning, and execution of vaccine evaluation. Um, if we can get a vaccine in as short a time as possible, I believe this system is set up to do that. Um, I think there are many challenges ahead for us with vaccines, as I've already said. Uh, I look no further than what happened last week uh, when uh, Sanofi, a, a company uh, in France, uh, announced that they would, with United States support for their vaccine research for COVID-19, would make their first doses available to the U.S. The French government reacted uh, with clear and compelling anger uh, about, no, you're a French company. Uh, the next day, the CEO had to retract his previous statement. We haven't even begun to work on yet the issues around um, uh, what it means right now in terms of global supply, how we will not just make sure that the vaccine works, but that in fact that the vaccines can be made, uh, that the supply chains for every aspect of the vaccine is there to make those doses, to make those vials, those syringes, those needles, whatever's needed. And then we have an agreement where the vaccine is going to go. So we're in the earliest stages. Keep thinking about, I'll, I'll start using the uh, uh, Kentucky Derby analogy now and tell you when we get to the first turn. And we're a long ways from that. But the bottom line, all the horses are still in the race. Uh, they are looking good, but we're just just beginning. So, Mike, let's get to an email question from one of our listeners, this one from Dan, who asks, I think, an important question as we get into the summer months here. Uh, and Dan asks, while I'm sure it's possible to contract the virus outdoors, is there anything about respiratory transmission or the virus itself that would make outdoor transmission less likely? Does an outdoor gathering, like an afternoon barbecue, pose a significant outbreak risk if there's an asymptomatic person in attendance? Good news this week. Not surprising. There was a study that was released out of China in which they evaluated more than 300 outbreak clusters of COVID-19, looking at people who were all exposed to a one individual. And in these outbreaks, they varied uh, uh, in terms of three or more people at a, an event, uh, including more than 1,245 cases. And they found that only in one instance, and even this one, it's not clear how they found this because it was only two cases, occurred where the contact was actually outside. All the rest of them were inside. Now, I do have to say there is some challenge with that because it occurred during the winter when the Hubei province outbreak was most prominent and it was colder. So people may have spent more time inside had they been outside. But I think the data generally support what we've been saying all along is that uh, the uh, aerosols that one creates and even the droplets dissipate much more quickly outside any air movement moves them, um, and that uh, the chances of time and exposure, meaning that how much virus is someone excreting, how close are you to that virus, and what how much time you spend, because you do have to have an infectious dose acquired there, um, is such that being outside and walking, moving, uh, probably poses a very, very small limited risk. And if there was ever a time that we as a, a country would like to get our sea legs under us again. It's now. The spring is here, moving into summer. And so I strongly encourage uh, that people do get outdoor activity, but not in large crowds. Uh, and again, I would say uh, in walking, uh, you know, in parks, uh, in locations where you're not chic to jaw with someone, 
um, is one of the best things you could do. And I think that the risk is incredibly low for those kinds of events. So everybody on this podcast, start getting your walking shoes on, stay healthy, walk. And uh, when you're outside, avoid crowds, avoid people being all congregated together as much as you can. But even then, the outdoors surely does provide us uh, with a buffer there as these these uh, aerosols and droplets dissipate much more quickly. They move quickly with any air movement, uh, which we're more likely to see outdoors. Uh, there were some other interesting findings out of Asia this week. Uh, the Korean Centers for Disease Control and Prevention yesterday released a report with some new findings on 285 COVID-19 survivors who had tested positive for the coronavirus after their illness had resolved. What's significant about the new findings in these patients? Well, it's exactly what we've been telling you. Um, as you know, I've discussed this on previous podcasts. Uh, I was highly concerned that the initial results coming out of Asia, studies both in Korea and China, continuing to find people chronically infected or reinfected were mistakes. And I have felt that from the very beginning that what we were witnessing was a naturally knowing phenomena with PCR testing, where when someone has viral infections, it's not unusual to actually clear the virus itself But in the process of having made all these uh, virions, these individual viruses, um, what happened was they created a lot of debris, meaning that was incomplete parts of the virus that never assembled into full virus. We know you can excrete that in certain body fluids for potentially long periods of time. This is not unique to COVID-19 disease or SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so... I had raised multiple times, again, addressed it on this very podcast, that I was certain that this was just PCR picking up uh, residual uh, debris being excreted and that it could even be intermittent. So when someone says, well, they tested for four straight days and they're negative for three days, now they're positive, ha-ha, they're reinfected. That was just part of the natural biologic phenomenon of declaring viral debris. Well, we're very happy to report that uh, yesterday, Uh, The Korean CDC actually released a study of 285 COVID-19 survivors, many who they previously said were these chronically infected individuals. They all had tested positive for uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 after their illnesses had long resolved. And in some cases, uh, they went from intermittent status of yes, no, yes, no, 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 yes, that kind of thing. What they did, uh, and many of us were <laughs> voicing our, our strong support for doing this, was they actually then began looking at virus culture. So they started testing these people by, both by PCR and virus culture, and guess what? Not one of them had a live virus found in any of these body fluids that were PCR positive. And so it really confirms what we've been saying. We have no evidence of chronic infection at this point. I wouldn't rule it out. It couldn't happen in an immune-compromised individual but it's going to be a very, very rare event. And number two, we don't have any evidence of people getting reinfected. This point that people had made before about, aha, you know, now that uh, I've been negative for a week and I've got it again, I must be reinfected. So this is good news. Uh, Hopefully this ends the debate over uh, the idea of of reinfection and people stop calling PCR tests uh, in a way that makes it sound like they're virus recovery. They're not. And uh, I... I think this also speaks, by the way, to the fact that in many of these patients, um, they were PCR positive for some time when, in fact, they couldn't be found, uh, they didn't have virus, supporting that as people recover clinically, even though they are still PCR positive, 
we can't uh, assume that they're still infectious. I think for most of them, they're not. And I think this, this, this was very good news and welcome news that gets this uh, chronic infection, reinfection issue off the table. Mike, over the last few weeks, there have been increasing reports of an inflammatory syndrome in children that appear to be linked to COVID-19. How concerned are you about this, and, and how will this impact discussions around schools starting up again in the fall? Anything that involves kids is a numerator. It's never a rate. It's not a numerator and a denominator. We know that. Um, and as a parent, as a grandparent, I'm the first one to tell you that. Um, at the same time, we have to look at this from the standpoint of a numerator denominator in this regard. We do see a new multi-system inflammatory syndrome occurring in children. Uh, it was first reported in Italy uh, uh, back uh, as the outbreaks began there uh, back in April, uh, in which cases were uh, from one local area there in Bergamo. Uh, at the peak of the pandemic, uh, they ended up seeing uh, seven boys and three girls who had this Kawasaki-like disease. Kawasaki is a disease named after Dr. Kawasaki from Japan, who first described it, in which we've known for years, uh, many, many years, that in fact, this was likely a post-viral syndrome condition where there was an immune response causing uh, a vasculitis or inflammation of, of uh, the organs, particularly the blood system that also often resulted in aortic aneurysms in these kids that would occur. Um, and so this is not new. I might add parenthetically that I was involved with Kawasaki research uh, back in the 1980s and 90s and had the good fortune to meet Dr. Kawasaki at that time, a, a very old man at a meeting in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, I was always struck by his incredible kindness and, and uh, thoughtfulness about this. And we still, to this day, don't understand completely what causes Kawasaki other than it often follows uh, having had what appears to be a viral syndrome. So now we have these cases that have first occurred in Italy. Uh, we see cases now in England. The Netherlands have reported cases. The United States now has reported cases. And this past week, the CDC actually issued a health alert uh, entitled Multi-System Inflammatory Syndrome in Children Associated Coronavirus Disease 2019, where they've asked for cases to be reported, uh, ones that have fever, laboratory evidence of inflammation, uh, the kind of classic uh, symptoms that we see with these. Um, generally speaking, the best data we have says that most of these patients will fully recover. Uh, their treatment to date has been using actually immune globulin, which was used back in, uh, in the Kawasaki patient days of even 30 years ago, uh, but it appears to be somewhat successful. If you look at the number of cases in the U.S., which in New York right now, has the highest number, which I, uh, as of yesterday, had 15 patients with this. Uh, and uh, New York State itself has identified 102 patients with similar presentations. Um, I just have to remind people that this is a, a, an important disease. It's a serious disease. But at the same time, uh, or on a given year of influenza, we'd expect to see 80 to 100 young children die from influenza. And we don't close schools. We don't uh, change what we do with these kids uh, in terms of daycares when they get influenza. I'm not suggesting that we not be sensitive to this. We have to be. Uh, I can't imagine being a parent of a child who does develop this and dies. I can't even imagine that. But at the same time, we have to put it in perspective that it is clearly a manifestation that is rare. 
and we're going to learn a lot more about it. Now, that may change over time. Maybe it'll become more uh, prevalent in our population as the, as the SARS-CoV-2 virus spreads, and we'll just have to stay tuned. But right now, uh, I think it does reflect clearly uh, a post-infection syndrome with COVID-19, and it's not something that is brand new relative to the overall condition, but it is new relative to COVID-19. Mike, you mentioned the CDC. Um, in a recent Wall Street Journal opinion piece, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb wrote that the CDC hasn't been fulfilling its traditional role during this pandemic of publishing data that clinicians can use to care for patients, and that the agency in general has spoken infrequently and with reticence on COVID-19. Is that a fair criticism? Anyone who's listened to me on this podcast over the recent weeks or knows me at all from a professional, personal standpoint knows that I'm I'm not afraid to just tell the truth and uh, let it be where it is. I, I learned a long time ago, anyone who works with me, my students all know, when all those fellows just tell the truth, it's the most important thing you can do. Um, so I'd be the first to criticize CDC, and I did that in hopefully a constructive way back in February when we had major problems with the testing situation. There's no two ways about it. CDC failed us in that regard. Um, but as an agency goes, CDC has been a crown jewel in public health in this country for years. And I think it's done the very best it can do in this situation. Um, it's easy to take pot shots at this place right now, just as I saw one of the senior White House officials do last Sunday in the TV talk shows. And it's absolutely unfair. Very few people realize right now there are hundreds and hundreds of CDC employees out in each of the states helping state health departments deal with many of these uh, conjugate living, conjugate working outbreaks. Uh, I, I, you know, a comment that was published yesterday by Scott Gottlieb in the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, former commissioner of FDA, was just absolutely off the mark. It was wrong. Basically saying that CDC is not doing its work to get information out. If you go to the CDC website, they've done an amazing job of getting information out under some difficult circumstances of getting clearance. Um, many cases uh, of disease don't get reported to state health departments right away, which then go to CDC. Uh, they're a recipient of this information. They can't make it up. They can't be at the bedside. One of the problems we have with large outbreaks is that everybody's under stress at the time. The fog of an outbreak can be absolutely oppressive. And so it's really a hard time about thinking about publishing things or getting information in when you're just trying to save people's lives. CDC works through that all the time. So I, I just have to say, I, I'm so sorry for the people who work at CDC to have to take this kind of uh, discussion uh, as if somehow they're failing the nation. Uh, I think they need to be able to step up. Uh, I have every reason to believe that their lack of public presence uh, in, in the Washington, D.C. scene is much more a function of what they're made to do, not what they want or can do. And I think that that's a very important consideration. So I would urge anyone listening to this podcast, uh, you know, if you have a chance, send somebody you know at CDC an email and tell them thank you for what they're doing. And, uh, you know, I, 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 we need them. They're, they have an incredible level of expertise. They're starting a major study right now looking at the serial prevalence of this virus in cities throughout the country. Very important study. Uh, they just quietly keep doing what they do. Uh, and their website is complete with information. It's a, a very impressive effort. And even when they can't get us the kind of information we want, just know it's not because they haven't tried. You all know about the reopening recommendations, how they were stopped 
by the White House uh, from being published, and then revised ones were published. So, um, you know, I'll be the first one to say if CDC, I think, uh, doesn't fulfill its uh, duties, what they need to do. But I'll also be the first to stand up and say, thank you, CDC. We're very fortunate to have you. What you're doing, uh, state health departments, local health departments around this country are so appreciative of what you're doing to support them. And uh, I hope all of us on these podcasts uh, understand that uh, that we owe them a debt of gratitude for what, what they're working on under very difficult conditions. Well, we've covered a lot of territory today, Mike, uh, but uh, do you have any last thoughts? First of all, I do have some thoughts. Um, <laughs> meet without thoughts. Uh, I want to thank all of you who have been listening to these podcasts for the recent weeks with such poor audio quality on my behalf. You know, I'm doing this from my home office. Uh, we surely have not been set up to provide the quality of audio uh, that you all want to need and should have. I take responsibility for that, trying to get it fixed. But uh, in one of those moments where you kind of have to say to yourself, is this really possible? Um, there's a company in California, Universal Audio Company, uh, owned and run by Bill Putnam Jr. And one of his a very important critical lead uh, 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 individuals there, Dan Fulop, uh, Ferlano, have been listening to our podcast. And unbeknownst to me, they've taken an interest not just in the podcast, but the quality of the sound. And so uh, Universal Audio Company is a designer and importer of audio uh, uh, sig and signal processing hardware for professional recording studios, live uh, sound, broadcasting fields, etc. They're well known among the most prominent bands in the world. And they informed us at SIDRAP to help improve on this. They are sending us an entire audio studio for us to use to record these podcasts. I can't tell Bill and Dan nearly enough. Thank you for that very, very kind gesture. Now, I don't, can't promise you that the actual content's going to get any better, but I can promise you the sound will get better. So from that regard, I just wanted to say what great news, and hopefully by next week we'll have that uh, new studio in place, and I'm going to have to up my game in every way possible. The other thing I, I just wanted to discuss before we go uh, is something that uh, – I've had, I've, I've had one of those weeks again where trying to pull all this together, where we're at, what we're doing, what we're feeling, what we're saying. Um, and I, I'm committed, uh, and I, everyone at SIDRAP knows we all are committed to not only thinking but feeling. And, you know, I never understood in all my years what it must have been like to be in the Civil War and watch families divided where some fought for the North, some fought for the South. And how that must have been so painful. And for the first time in my life, I'm actually watching that happen in modern history. This issue has so polarized our country. I know of families right now where kids are not talking to you, sibs are not talking to each other, not talking to parents. I've seen some of the actual language shared back and forth where there is an absolute belief that this is a conspiracy, that it's not real. Uh, that uh, it was an attempt to, to you know, destroy the administration or the economy, public health people who can't understand why people are out and about, uh, where they should all be locked up, et cetera. And, and I only can say that um, we have a lot of work to do to understand this because, again, coming back to the fact we're in the earliest days of this, and we have to understand that this is the virus 
that's doing this. It's not public health trying to, you know, say we're going to do this or that. This, this, is, this is the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology all wrapped up into one package called, called a virus. And it's going to damn well please do whatever it wants to do with our limited ability to shave off the curve to try to reduce the full impact of what might be happening at the moment. But so I, I just want to say that I, I, I think all of us have to take a step back and say, what are we allowing ourselves to be part of? What's happening? Uh, what's happening in our families? And, and I've seen this too much. I actually have a good friend. I, I, I hope so. I hope it's a good friend who won't talk to me right now because I'm part of the conspiracy and I've known this individual for a long time. Um, I can't tell you how hard that is. And I know that there are many of you on this podcast who are experiencing exactly the same thing. And so we're learning. We're learning how to die by this virus, as I've said many times, very painfully learning about that. And we're now painfully learning how to live with it. But I have to end this with uh, emails. I, I am now getting uh, upwards of several thousand emails a day. I am not doing a good job at all of staying current. So for those of you who send wonderfully kind emails, thank you. One day I will read all of them, I promise, and hopefully respond. But sometimes for some reason, certain ones just come through. And I just have to share a couple of these with you because I think they embody what the people who listen to this podcast are all about. Bob sent an email in which he says to me, how do you stay positive during this crisis? How do you stay grounded in science and deal with the emotions of anger and frustration when you observe so much of the country going against science and common sense? And at the same time, another very thoughtful email came through from uh, Paul who uh, is a psychologist um, and someone who uh, is a research psychologist. Uh, his work focuses on the effects of human behavior on our stress response. And he's been, he, he wrote and said, I've been telling patients and colleagues to engage in healthy behavior so that if, when they become infected, their body is functioning as optimally as possible as opposed to already run down. In other words, if you're about to embark on a brutal road trip, take care of your car beforehand, change oil, rotate the tires, you have a much better chance of completing the road trip if your car is running optimally to begin with. I just don't hear this point being emphasized, and it's something everyone should do. And then he went on to say, you touch on the importance of healthy behaviors of the end of each podcast when you emphasize the importance of being kind to one another. I wonder if you might be, it might be beneficial to emphasize the importance of being kind to yourself as well. Take care of your body, reduce stress, meditate, etc. cetera, whatever, whatever is restorative. And, you know, I share that message with both of these. Um, as, as we heard from uh, Bob, I think it's really important that we do understand that we're going to feel these emotions. We're going to be angry. We're going to be frustrated. We're not going to, in some cases, have the wherewithal to, to have a respectful conversation. We just need to walk away. And at the same time, I think what uh, Paul has shared with us is equally important. In that regard, we still have to take care of ourselves and find those things that make a difference that, uh, and, and I'm, I'm the first one that has to do what he's preaching here because I think he's right and I'm not sure I've done it all so well. Uh, I continue on uh, my March 10th last date. I got to see my grandchildren except on FaceTime. Um, but I think that now is the time that uh, all of us need to look. When this. We're in the long haul. We got to prepare for that. And I don't want any of you to fall by the wayside uh, before that long haul is over. We need to stay together. 
Uh, as Ben Franklin once said, you know, we must hang together, we surely shall hang separately. And I'd much rather hang uh, together with you all than hang separately. And finally, I just want to end it uh, again, making a plea. You know, there's only some things we can do about this pandemic. Uh, and unfortunately, not nearly enough right now. But there is something we can do about the epidemic of kindness. And I urge every one of you again this week, mark on that calendar, one a day, at least be kind. And, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not naive enough to suggest that our acts of kindness will undo the pain and suffering of what this virus brings. But you know what? We will have a better way uh, of, of being who we are, what we are. And I would just close with, with one last story for a couple of you on this podcast who are old enough to remember uh, the late, great Harry Chapin, songwriter, balladeer of the 1970s, once asked the great songwriter, uh, singer Pete Seeger, who was leading a number of uh, demonstrations during the Vietnam War era, he said, Pete, why do you do that? Do you, do, you, do you really get anything out of that? Does it make a difference? And Pete looked at Harry, and I heard his voice in this recording say, you know, Harry, I don't know if it makes any difference or not. But I know that when I go to bed at night, I put my head on that pillow. I spent the day with the good people. And, you know, although I don't see all of you out there, I just know people on this podcast, I get the chance to spend this time with you because you're the good people. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to talking to you next week with a much better sound system. And uh, be safe, be well, and be kind. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ostrom. And thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.